This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We've all been anxiously following the terrible outbreak at the Roberta Place long-term care home that has infected all but one resident. It has killed 66 of them and at least one essential caregiver. And now there is a $50 million proposed class action lawsuit against the home, which is charging negligence and a total failure to prepare and protect residents for the second wave that everyone knew was coming. Now, before we get to the lawyers, please take a listen to musician Jeremy Taggart, who we talked to yesterday. He's not involved with the lawsuit, but his mother, Beryl, is a resident there currently battling COVID under these heartbreaking conditions. She was in a a room with one other person. That's the other thing that was very concerning when I heard that their owner uh, David Jarlat actually admitted that they were not cohort, cohorting properly, that they were um, inundated and overwhelmed, and people were actually not properly uh, isolated. And that's that's my biggest problem with this whole thing. Well, now I'd like to bring in Gail Brock, a lawyer of with Brock Medical Malpractice Law, the firm that's bringing the lawsuit, and Jane Mita, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby, for having me. Thanks, Libby. Uh, Gail, so what are the main allegations in this lawsuit? Yeah, the main allegations are of uh, negligence and gross negligence for for various uh, reasons. Um, as Mr. Taggart just said, failing to cohort patients, uh, sorry, inmate, uh, not inmates, um, uh, residents who are COVID positive and residents who are not COVID positive. Um, I've spoken with two families just yesterday exactly in the same position as Mr. Taggart's family. Um, so there's non-cohorting, there's inappropriate use of PPE, lack of PPE, failure to, as you said at the outset, to be um, ready for this second wave, um, failure to uh, have proper testing, failure um, to properly instruct staff and have them tested uh, daily, having staff who are working with COVID-positive patients, uh, working with um, non-positive patients. And um, it, it's it's so widespread, Libby, um, the, the allegations just go on and on. Jane Metis, you know, when these allegations come up, the homes usually say, they make it sound like some kind of act of God. There was nothing we could do. These are older homes. There's nowhere else for us to put these residents. Uh, Our staff called in sick. Uh, What's your view of of those defense, I guess? Well, I mean, you know, this, it might have been you know, at the beginning of the, you know, COVID in March or April last year, there, you know, maybe had some um, ability to have those kinds of comments. Uh, but certainly we're, you know, well into um, uh, almost a year, um, and those just don't fly. And, in fact, um, Roberto Place knew that they had problems. They had orders as far back as September around their infection control. And so, you know, they already had been on notice um, to comply. They were unable to comply. And in fact, when the ministry went in in December to review that, they had to um, extend the period to to meet the infection control because the home still hadn't done that. Um, Jarlette is a, you know, a large, you know, a fairly large company. Um, You know, it, uh, one of the things that the, 
you know, the private sector says is, you know, we have the ability because we have these corporate offices and we can set policies across everything. Where were those policies? They knew there was a problem in September. Um, you know, they they couldn't meet it for December, and it's still clear from the inspection reports that there were some horrible things going on uh, with respect to infection control. So it, that that argument is is just wrong. Uh, Jane, uh, how much is the government's fault? There, there are lots of homes with all these orders against them, uh, you know, uh, and there would be more if they did more inspection, and they never seem to be enforced. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they came in in September in this case and said, you have till December to uh, fix this infection control issue, which I think is far too long in the middle of a pandemic. You then have them saying... Um, in December, oh, you didn't do it. Now you have, you know, we're going to extend that period. I mean, it's really problematic that it's a continued, you know, extension and they just let them go. And uh, this is the consequence is, you know, over 60 people dying because they didn't have proper infection control. Uh, Gail Brock, uh, the government changed the law so that instead of having to prove garden variety negligence, you have to prove gross negligence. Uh, just take me through that, please. How much harder does that make things? And, and what's your view of that? Yeah, um, gross negligence is not a separate tort from negligence. It's uh, what it is, Libby. It's, it's a degree um, and not of a kind of negligence. And each case will turn on its own facts. And when we look at this case, um, the evidence for us is gross negligence. And, and if this isn't gross negligence, I don't know what is. Going back to what, what Jane just said about, you know, the government going in, the, the Ministry of Long-Term Care, uh, making recommendations for change, going back in, and those recommendations were not implemented, and then having to make an actual order uh, to make change in January, um, I don't know. I'm not in there. I'm, I'm just hearing stories from people I'm speaking with uh, about the lack of change. And uh, to us, that's gross negligence. It is um, a, high, a higher bar to meet, but I don't think it's an impossible bar to meet. Jane, do you think that will make it harder for this lawsuit to succeed? Well, I mean, certainly in some cases it will, but I think that in a case like this where you go back to September when you're getting orders on this specific issue, um, I would hope that this, you know, I I agree. If this isn't gross negligence, then what would be? You know, uh, again, people always ask, if there are orders, how come there's no enforcement? And, and the answer always seems to be there would be nowhere else to put these residents. What about that? Well, I can certainly say that, you know, the enforcement system has been quite lax. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, the there are no fines in the system. They're not charging people, um, though they could do that. Um, I, I, they could have you know, provincial offenses charges that the government has simply just sort of said, well, we just have to work with what we have. And the result is a system like this where, um, the enforcement, you know, clearly something that was so critical in the middle of a pandemic as infection control, where orders were made in September and we're in February. And today, you know, they've been given till today to resolve those issues. And, and you know, who knows whether they have or not, whether the ministry will go in and, and determine whether they've resolved those infection controls to issues today. Um, and so there's no there's no backing. But, you know, what they they don't want to close the places because if they close all the places, then there's absolutely nowhere for people to go. But they should have been much stricter to start with, and then we would not be in this position now. Gail Brock, in the first wave, you know, the excuse or the explanation was, we've never seen anything like this. Uh, This is brand new. Uh, How could we know what we had to deal with. Now, I'm anticipating that in in this one, Roberta Place will say uh, this was uh, the new variant that arrived and ripped through our home like wildfire, and we had never seen it before, and we had no idea it was coming, and neither did anyone else. For for us, um, the evidence isn't there that everybody uh, who has passed away or who is uh, still in Roberta Place with 
uh, the virus is from the new variant. Um, there are people who we've talked to who were not informed that it was the new variant, and in fact, they stopped testing to see if the newer uh, COVID-positive patients are as a result of the variant. So I think it's a really yeah. I, I think it's wow. a, a weak argument, uh, and you know if. if if they are able to come forward now with this evidence, uh, to me it'll be shocking given what people have told me about the lack of communication and transparency coming out of Roberta Place to the families, especially the families who have lost people. I, I just basically read reporting on it, and I was sure that they were testing everyone who fell ill. Jane, is, is this a surprise to you? Uh, it's not a surprise. Um, there's been issues around testing throughout. Um, you might, I don't know if you remember back to the beginning with the first um, outbreaks, you know, they, they tested the first three people and then just assumed everybody else had it. Um, so, you know, the there I think there's limited places that are able to do this testing. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me at all. I think that's, it's obviously not um, probably the, that's, it's not very helpful not to know. But, you know, whether or not this is the new variant or the old variant, you know, um, this home didn't, wasn't not, com- was not complying with um, infection control protocols. So good old variant, new variant doesn't matter. Uh, they weren't uh, complying. Um, and that would be the, you know, one of the most important things that triggered, you know, an outbreak. Yeah, let me give the numbers out again. I'd like to hear from people what they think of this, and especially if uh, you know someone or have a loved one at Roberta Place, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Gail Brock and Jane Medes about a $50 million proposed class action lawsuit against Roberta Place where all but one resident, that's more than 200 have fallen ill with COVID and 66 people have died so far. It is just so shocking and heartbreaking. And uh, the the charges in this lawsuit are, are the usual negligence, failure to do infection control. Now, again, um, and either Jane or Gail, how much is the responsibility of the government? For instance, in Quebec, it was mandated that every home had to have one person whose only job was infection control, but that's not the case here. Um, this is Kale Libby. Uh, for, for us, we, uh, in our preliminary investigations, we looked at whether to include the government as a defendant in the lawsuit. And right now, uh, we did not include them because uh, there were uh, procedures in place, there were guidelines from uh, the government, and we say that if Roberta Place had abided by those guidelines and treated their residents as they should have, then this would not have happened. We would not have these deaths. Uh, and it falls on Roberta Place and the management. We continue to investigate, uh, looking at what uh, inspections were done, what recommendations were made, what order was eventually made in January. So uh, we're not saying the government may not, uh, will never be included as a defendant, but we did not include them at the outset because uh, we did not have the evidence to include them. The other thing is that I know that here in Toronto, they did, in the summer, at least in some places, put in a system where they had hubs and the hospitals at least consulted on issues like infection control. I know that University Health Network did, and that's before they took over management of any homes. Uh, Jane, did anything like that exist in Barrie? Well, I can't speak specifically to, you know, what kind of relationship the hospital may have had, but yes, it was supposed to be cross-provincial where the hospitals have all been paired with with local long-term care homes. I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, it does go back to some funding issues and that, um, and lack of staffing. And so, you know, the hospitals will often make recommendations based on their expertise in a hospital setting, but we know that hospitals are better resourced, um, have way more staff, 
pay their staff better. Um, and so it doesn't always translate into the long-term care homes because of the lack of funding, um, you know, to the homes uh, to have someone whose only job it is to, you know, do infection um, control and protocols. And when you hear that from, um, you know, medical personnel who go into homes from hospitals and are actually quite shocked at what's going on, even though they're complying with the, quote, rules in those homes, it is so different from hospitals because they just don't have the personnel to be able to, um, you know, do some of the things that would happen in a hospital. And, and Gail, is there any scenario in which uh, a hospital that was consulting in that way could also be liable? What I've found here, um, and, and remember, these are the stories I'm hearing from uh, the residents and their families, is that when uh, a resident has been tested positive for the, the virus, the family is consulted and asked uh, whether they want their mother, their brother, whomever it is, to remain at Roberta Place or to move to Royal Victoria Hospital in Barrie and uh, go there for treatment of, of the virus. Um, most of the people I've spoken with have said we kept our family member at Roberta Place feeling that if um, they were going to pass, unfortunately, they wanted them to be in the home where they had lived uh, and not pass away in hospital. Um, Royal Victoria Hospital, as I understand it, was not directly involved in making decisions for COVID-positive patients at Roberta Place. It was um, under, you know, it was doctors speaking with family members and giving the family members the choice of what kind of care their uh, family member would get either at Roberta Place or the hospital. Can you tell me a little bit about the lead plaintiff in the case? It's Ms. Lambie, and it's her brother that's a resident, right? Yes. Um, Ms. Lambie came to me uh, out of concerns of the care her brother George Head was receiving at Roberta Place. He lives in a private room, uh, and she could not believe that he, he, being isolated in that room, uh, could contract the virus. How did this happen? And over four to six weeks, she saw him deteriorate. He's only 70 years old wow. uh, with early onset of dementia. That's why he was in Roberta Place. And uh, Ms. Lambie, uh, rightfully, is devastated by her brother's deterioration and came to me for answers. How could this happen? Why did this happen? Um, somebody has to be held accountable for what is happening to my brother. She didn't come to me to start a class action. She came to me about her brother and herself and her concerns about what she was seeing. Uh, and it was through our discussions uh, and her observations about other um, events at Roberta Place and her friendships with other people there that led to the start of this lawsuit. Uh, so I'm, I'm taking from that that she is an essential caregiver and she uh, was actually able to get inside the home. That's correct. Because yesterday we talked to Jeremy and he, he uh, isn't inside the home. Whereas Ms. Lambie mother... is no longer inside the home, but she was inside the home caring for her brother. And uh, and uh, presumably the uh, there are there are other families there who uh, really want to see this go ahead. Absolutely. I am going to take a call from David in Toronto. Hello, David. Hi, I have a quick question for the lawyers. That being for the home that's in Barrie that they're doing the um, uh, class action suit against. What about? Can there be any criminal charges filed against the director or directors? That's a very good question. Uh, I, I've actually had several people ask me about um, whether the police should be called in to investigate whether charges should be made for criminal negligence causing death or some other criminal charges. Um, I'm not a criminal lawyer. Uh, maybe Jane can speak to it uh, better than I can. But um, so for, for us, this this is a, a civil action, um, but, but certainly if... Uh, Who's, uh, okay, is everyone there? Yes. 
Okay. Oh, we've lost Jane. Okay. Oh no, she, and she's the one that can answer the question. Okay, but we'll we'll get her back. I don't know what happened there. Um, okay. Sorry, Gail, you were saying. Yeah. So I was saying, um, if if there was evidence of some criminal behavior, uh, I think I I would get instructions from some of our clients to. Uh, bring the police in, but so far we haven't seen any of that. And let, let me just say, um, Dave, that, you know, this is early on in the investigation of this case, so uh, we don't know yet what is going to unfold as it moves forward. Okay, we have Jane back. Jane, I don't know if you heard David's question about whether there's any opportunity in a case like this for criminal charges. Sure. So, you know, there's certainly... Um, you know, in cases like this, there's certainly opportunity for things like um, the criminal negligence or or um, failing to provide the necessaries if people are dying um, from lack of care or or you know we've heard certainly cases of you know uh, dehydration and malnutrition. That being said, that um, there has never been a case that I'm aware of um, where this has actually happened in long-term care homes. So even though we feel that there are many cases, and I'm not saying that this case is one of them, but there are cases where criminal charges could potentially be laid. Um, we don't see it happening ever um, across Canada. Um, it just doesn't happen. Um, things that we see that, you know, if you and I were taking care of someone at home uh, where we think, you know, criminal charges would be laid if we provided that poor care, it never happens in long-term care. There's also um, public um provincial offenses in the Long-Term Care Homes Act. So while the ministry doesn't have the authority to charge people uh, or fine people under the Act, they can um, request that the um, uh, a police agency, such as the OPP, for example, could come in and investigate under the Long-Term Care Homes Act and that there are provincial offenses charges that could come for noncompliance. And I think that, you know, in a case like this, it would that would be a more likely scenario. However, again, we have never seen them do that. Wow. I, I didn't know that existed. That's interesting. David, I hope that answered your question. Uh, yes, I just want one more question for Jane. Um, is that something that um, she could pursue to aid um, the, the class, act, class action suit? Uh, well, that's not something that we would pursue. That would, It has to come through the government. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, David. Thanks for that. Uh, so, Jane... When we see something like this, a class action lawsuit, I mean, do you see actions like this as something that can advance the whole thing forward? I mean, we keep hearing, oh, my God, this is so horrible. We are going to change long-term care, and then it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And we see a first wave, and and we're going to make sure this never happens again, and here we are on track to exceed the number of deaths. You know, unfortunately, it seems to be... Um, you know, there's been a failure um, in the government, I think, of, of, you know, ensuring compliance. We have, you know, these uh, homes that uh, are quite aware of what, you know, what the issues are. We have homes that aren't complying with the rules um, and to, you know, these disastrous effects. And unfortunately, I think that the only way to go after them is litigation. And, you know, um, up until fairly recently, um, there was no litigation against long-term care homes um, just because of the way our system worked. Um, and so that has allowed them to continue um, really without any checks and balances because we know that the, 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 the system the government has isn't, isn't ensuring compliance. So really, unfortunately, it becomes the only way to, um, to get any kind of uh, resolution for clients and hopefully to change the system. Hmm. Gail, can you uh, give us an idea just of uh, what's the process uh, going forward to try to get this certified, and, and what kind of timelines are we talking about? Uh, as of today, the defendants have been served, given the lawsuit, and we expect they will respond uh, within the month, but we are right now in the process of drafting the motion for certification, so we're not certified yet as a, as a class action, uh, and... Uh, what we want is for uh, the defendants to respond first, and then we will bring our motion. Uh, but we're not going to wait uh, forever for that defense. Usually a waiver is asked for some extra time, but 
uh, we'll see when uh, Roberta Place and the other defendants respond what they're asking for. Uh, lawsuits take a long time, unfortunately, Libby. We have to still prove the case. Uh, we have to prove the residents uh, contracted the virus at Roberta Place, that they passed away or they survived but still have the virus or damages that flow from uh, contracting it and surviving it. So there's a, a lot that we still have to do uh, aside from getting it certified. So, but yes, the, the, the main goal right now is to get the, the uh, class action certified and collect as much evidence as we can uh, regarding all of the individuals and the family members who have been affected um, by what has gone on there. As far as a time frame, this could take three, four years, depending on what the defense is and how much pushback there is from the defendants. Hmm. And uh, Jane, anything you'd like to leave us with uh, quickly? Well, I think that people really need to be speaking to their uh, members of provincial parliament in order to really push um, for changes um, and to ensure compliance right now. Uh, we're really not seeing what we need to see in the system, and we're just continuing to see deaths. And with this new variant, um, it has been, become even more critically important that all of the long-term care homes are complying um, and that the ministry is taking steps that they need, whether it's hiring, training and hiring more personal support workers, getting more nursing staff in, uh, whatever it takes um, to ensure the safety of the residents. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for that, Jane Medus and Gail Brock. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have a look at some of those travel restrictions. Are they the right ones? What is the impact going to be? Is it going to deter people from taking those March break holidays? What about snowbirds? We will have all that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Last week, the government imposed new travel restrictions on passengers coming through our airports. All flights to the Caribbean and Mexico are now banned. Passengers will have to take a COVID test when they land and then quarantine at a government-designated hotel at their own expense for at least three days while awaiting test results, and uh, that will apparently be costing about two grand. Now, that last requirement is not yet in effect, but authorities say it will be soon. And so, are these the right things to do? Will these measures be effective in containing the virus? And will they stop people from traveling? And what about people who are already away and need to get back? And what about the others who have paid for holidays that now won't be happening? If you have questions, give us a shout, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure, Richard Smart, CEO and Registrar of the Ta Travel Industry Council of Ontario, and Dr. Frederick Dimanche, Director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management. Hello and welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Okay, let me start with Richard Smart. So uh, you are, Tyco is for people who have booked holidays uh, through travel agents. So uh, if somebody booked a March break trip through a travel agent, are they going to be able to get a refund? Yeah. Hi, hi again, hi. Libby. Uh, thanks very much. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. This has been um, uh, devastating for, for the travel industry and uh, Tico, as we're known, Travel Industry Council of Ontario, our, our mandate is uh, consumer protection. And so, of course, we are very uh, concerned uh, over the impact that the pandemic has had since last March, quite frankly. Uh, but the, this recent uh, round of uh, travel restrictions has been uh, very um, uh, difficult for the, the whole travel ecosystem. But um, for the travel agencies and tour operators that TICO uh, regulates, particularly for them and their, and their customers. So to answer your question, I mean, this recent round of restrictions, all the large tour operators, I'm talking the Air Canada Vacations, Transat, Sunwing, 
uh, WestJet Vacations. They've all uh, recently, in the last couple of days, come out with what their policies are uh, uh, and working with Tico to, to get that communication out to consumers. And for anyone who has recently booked, say, say a spring break, despite the fact that these travel restrictions have been in place for some time now, um, the with with certain exceptions, for the most part, consumers are getting their money back in the original form uh, they paid for. So if they pay by credit card, they'll get a credit back to their to their to their credit card. Okay, because uh, we know that from the first wave, a lot of people who had things booked that didn't happen have not had refunds. Yes, this has probably been. Um, the number one complaint that uh, our our complaints department receives at at, at Tico. This has been devastating for uh, for consumers. Uh, we're very uh, empathetic to to the to the situation. Um, however, the industry is also on you know on the precipice here. And uh, when the uh, pandemic uh, was first declared as such back in in March of last year, and we had that first wave. Both the um, the federal uh, regulator, the Canadian Transportation Agency, and a number of the provincial regulators, including ourselves, um, came out with policies uh, uh, and statements around the issuance of travel vouchers or future travel credits. They're called different things. And, and really for the long-term viability of the industry and to ensure that we protect as many consumers as possible, uh, the issuance of a, of a travel voucher um, was was issued in in many, not all cases. Uh, there were a number of registrants that did provide refunds to credit cards and and and, and as such, but the vast majority was was through these travel vouchers. And uh, we were pleased to see just uh, I think it was yesterday, the day before, that Sunwing Vacations has come out and extended their travel vouchers for another uh, uh, four years. I think it was to 20, 2026. So we understand that travel vouchers are not ideal. I, I hear often that. Uh, doesn't pay for the groceries. It doesn't pay my rent. But I think uh, Canadians and Ontarians are um, very, quite understanding overall and understand that for the, the long-term uh, viability of the industry and to protect their investment in the long run, a voucher is a, a, reasonable, uh, a reasonable form of reimbursement. However, this recent round of restrictions, the, the uh, big tour operators have come, come back with um, a refund in the original form of uh, payment. Okay. Um, let's bring in Marty Firestone. Hi, Marty. How are you? Fine. How are you? Doing good. Thank you. So you are in the insurance business. How has the announcement of, of these restrictions, how, how has it affected you? Yeah, most interesting. I'm getting two sort of groups happening here. I'm getting the group that are away now and either deciding when is this restriction coming in place with the three-day hotel quarantine. I may come back before. I want no part of this. The other group is saying, I want no part of it also. They're consistent on that, but they are suggesting they extend their current trip until such time that the restriction gets lifted. Therefore, they need me to try to get them an extension on their travel insurance. So that's where everybody's at at this point. Uh huh. And is it uh, easy? Is it feasible to get an extension on travel insurance? It is with the understanding that if you've had a claim, an expectation of a claim, or seen a doctor, it adds a lot of problem to the ability to get it. So I guess to put it simply, if if everything is good and no issues, I can get it. But having said that, if you have had a claim, many insurance companies will not offer additional extension. Hmm. Uh, it's 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 interesting. Uh, uh, the last time we were talking on this show, Martin, uh, I had a guest on, a friend of mine, uh, Penny, and uh, we had talked her out of not going. But when they started offering vaccinations to Canadians there, uh, you know, she was on the phone and she's in Florida. She's had one vaccination. Yep. Uh, she can join the lineup of my clients. Uh, 30% went in November, and the other 70 were quite content to take a pass on the year. They were actually listening to what I told them. But you are correct. Once that vaccine became available initially to anybody 65 and over, they all started calling and suggesting that they would maybe now go down, open up their places, and stay till April. Other than the ones who thought they were just going to go down vaccine tours and get the shot and come back, now the others can still go and get it done, though. Well, yeah, and it, the vaccine seems to, uh, it seems to have um, dried up a bit, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to blame them when, you know, we have no idea here. Yeah, that's, that's part of the problem. If we're looking at September, and I think you punched my name into something that showed I'd be September, and they are hearing from friends, by the way, who went down in November and said, I've already got my second shot, and we are out on the beach walking, and we are out having, you know, outdoor meals, and the sun is shining, and it's beautiful. It's it's causing them to say, why not me? 
Okay, let, let's bring in Dr. Dimanche. Hello, Dr. Dimanche. Hello, good afternoon. Okay, so uh, um, is what is all of this, first of all, doing to uh, your students? Are they starting to rethink a career in hospitality and tourism? Well, you know, some of them, those who graduated uh, recently, have been uh, having to rethink a career. And, and um, you know, we're lucky that, uh, you know, they get a, uh, a degree in commerce, and so they have skills that are, that are transferable. But the main message we're trying to communicate to the students is that the travel and tourism industry is going to rebound, and uh, the industry will need people who are well-equipped, who are entrepreneurial, who have ideas, who are innovative, to help uh, restart the industry. Um, travel is, is something that people love to do and need to do. Uh, we need to go on vacation, but also we need to travel for business, to visit friends and family. So all those hospitality and travel services are there to stay. The question is, you know, they are likely to have to reinvent themselves. You know, there will be some opportunity for entrepreneurs, and um, that's the communication that we try to to have with our students. Well, I, I'm sure there's huge pent-up uh, demand. Uh, let's take a call from Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Good afternoon, lady and gentlemen. Um, for people that are planning to go to Florida or think, oh, gee, I really want to go to Florida, think of this particular situation that happened in December, apparently, first week of December. Two people from Nova Scotia, where, as you know, there are not very many cases, decided, well, I'm going to go to Florida anyway. So they went, a couple went, and within uh, less than a week, the guy got it. He got it bad. He was on a ventilator for a month. Uh, His wife then shortly got it, had to go back to Nova Scotia. Eventually, he had to go back to Nova Scotia, really sick. And um, apparently, they didn't uh, monitor their insurance program properly, and found out that they now have a partial bill of three hundred thousand wow. dollars in medical. Bill. Could, uh, could I uh, say one quick thing there? Because I've, I've been working on that case. Not that it's a client of mine. They left on December fifth because they got an early cheap flight, even though their insurance didn't start till January the fourth. Only upon probably not starting to feel well did they call the insurance company and say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't have insurance. Can you put us on effective today?" That's where all the problems lay. They left the country without any insurance, and that's wow. that's part of the problem why the insurance company has denied the claim. So for one of the very few times, the insurance company in this case is not wrong. They did not advise them accordingly. Yeah, wow. Well, they, just, they just took too many chances, Yep, and they paid for it. Um, it's a terrible story nonetheless, Barry. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. Uh, Richard Smart, I, I I have a question, just a very quick follow-up. Uh, if if people bought one of those vacation packages by themselves online, are they still in line for refunds? Are, are those uh, packagers still offering a refund, or does that become more problematic? Yeah, the, the, the answer generally, generally, Libby, is it depends. Um, it, it, it depends whether they're buying their package from a registered TECL travel agency or tour operator. So if you're talking about one of the uh, one of the large ones I mentioned uh, a moment ago, this is one of the uh, key messages that uh, uh, Tico and through its travel agency uh, distribution network really tries to emphasize to consumers. There's no cost, uh, you know, to working with a with a travel agency, and you become fully of, fully informed by doing so. But more importantly, the consumer protections that are available to you, um, all our agents and agencies are advised to inform consumers about insurance. We encourage all consumers to, to purchase insurance, even though, even though it's not mandatory. Um, and when it comes to the other rules and regulations around uh, refunds and reimbursements, um, the consumers got the backing of the travel legislation uh, that the Ontario government has had in place since 1997. If you book on, on, a, on a website and it happens to be an out-of-province tour operator or an out-of-province agency, you know, we have a, a saying a little harsh at this time, but it's, uh, you know, book alone, you're on your own. And, and really, I can't emphasize enough, especially during these complex times when risks are so high. By the way, I think Barry raised a great point. I mean, there's a reason why the U.S. has got 200,000 new cases a day. I think the number's a little bit better now. Uh, and the number of uh, the unfortunate number of deaths that they have is, is that they haven't uh, followed the restrictions and the rules that have been in place. And when um, an Ontarian or Canadian is traveling down, whether it's to Florida or the, or the Caribbean, um, their their agency and agent is is required 
to provide all the information that that consumer needs to make an informed decision. And we know that some people will want to travel, um, but it is a small minority right now. Um, and you owe it to yourself to be fully informed when you make that travel purchase. And the only way you're going to get that is, is working through a TECO travel registered travel agency or, or website. Uh, so I think I think I think that's a key message that uh, consumers should take away. Okay, um, we're going to have to take another break. Just one quick question before the break to Doctor Dimanche: Are these the right restrictions, or are they just kind of uh, to make the government look like they're doing something? Well, you know, this is a, a big topic. And as you know, every single government around the world is, is trying to, to limit the spread of the virus, right? So uh, even within the provinces, we're not uh, agreeing. Um, you know, you, you see Alberta, uh, uh, Quebec also, you know, starting to reopen restaurants and museums. And so uh, and Ontario, we don't do that. And so every government is really struggling with what is the right measures? And, and of course, there are some good models. You, we look at some uh, countries in Asia. We look at uh, New Zealand and Australia that everybody talks about. Um, should we do the same thing? Should we have done the same thing? It's a possibility. But there are so many political factors, human factors, economic factors in the in the balance that it's very difficult to, you know, to second guess months later what we could have done or should have done. The the the, the issue is. What can we do now? And, and uh, um, limiting travel, I'm, I'm not saying we should entirely limit travel like the government has done, but limiting travel certainly is going to limit the risk. Okay. We've got to take a break, but we will be back with more from Marty Firestone, Richard Smart, and Dr. Frederick Dimanche. Uh, and we'll be taking your calls and your questions. Before we go to break, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about those new travel restrictions, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We're talking about travel and travel restrictions, and I'm I'm just chuckling here because I I uh, checked my email in the break, and what do I have? But a Valentine's Day offer from Aeroplan, an Air Canada gift card, to sweep them off their feet this Valentine's Day with plans for a romantic getaway. Uh, <laughs> great, that's a great idea. <laughs> are you sure that Are you sure that trip is it up to Thunder Bay? <laughs> Nothing against Thunder Bay, by the way. I I don't think Thunder Bay wants people from (laughs) Toronto, frankly. Um, Probably not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that's just too much. Sorry if I'm, I'm laughing. Let's take a call from Steve in Brampton. Hi, Steve. Oh, hi, Libby. I have a, a two questions actually for your panel. Uh, the front page of the Sun today is about a man from Scarborough who returned from the states and was surprised to find himself. Uh, awaiting positive test, re- or awaiting this his test results. He's he's in a three day quarantine in a hotel. Is which he, he already wasn't expecting? And no. uh, when I went on Facebook and saw his ad, then there were people coming in saying, "Yeah, it happened in Calgary too. Yeah, it happened in Vancouver too." So I did not think that was happening yet. So that's my first question. And my second question, if the panel knows, is when does the federal government uh, rule mandating that occur? Thank you. Uh, I, can I can I answer that? Please, um, yeah. Th- there is no way the hotel quarantine started yet. What did start was our Premier Doug Ford's PCR testing at the airport, which I've heard from clients already who arrived last night that say they are herded like cows into line, and there are hundreds of people now breathing over one another for this PCR test. So that is the only thing that's in place in Ontario now. The federal uh, move for the three-day quarantine and PCR test could be as early as tomorrow, February 4th, but I don't think it will be, and it could be within the next two weeks at the longest, I think, at some point in between. Yeah, okay, I, so mean, then, I mean... And I would just say, anybody, if you've had a look at the Toronto Sun today, I, I am confused, and I would have agreed with what you just said, but uh, it, it appears to be at variance with what I'm seeing in the paper. Well, wow. yeah, the paper's not, I mean, everything that I've seen in, in terms of uh, communiques from the government is that, that it, it's not in place yet. And you, you got to think that they need deals with hotels and blah, 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 blah. But who knows? 
Yeah, me too. Well, thank you. Uh, we're still confused. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I think the main thing about those restrictions, and I'm not surprised to hear that there are huge lineups of people breathing on each other, uh, is these things are intended as a deterrent. And even before this, a lot of people saying, well, you yeah. know, what worries me isn't my destination, it's the airport. And there you go. Um Dr. Dr. Dimanche, I mean, is that, you know? Yes, I, I would agree. I would agree. It's definitely, this was definitely designed and announced as a deterrent more than anything else. Uh, first of all, the government selected those so-called sun destinations, you know, the, the Caribbean and Mexico, because they know that uh, in the next uh, two months, you know, the Canadians are eager to go travel south, you know, and, and the typical March break. Uh, people were, were, you know, ready and, and uh, planning some vacation. So it's definitely a, a deterrent to prevent people from uh, traveling to those sun destinations. I'm surprised that there was no uh, prevention, for example, or, um, you know, to, to prevent people from traveling to the United States, which, as we discussed, is, uh, is just as risky, if not more risky than uh, the uh, the Caribbean destination, but the, the quarantine, the, the cost, uh, and all those, you know, certainly add up to the uh, psychological barrier that people are perceiving for traveling, and and that's what will prevent them from traveling. Well, I think we can all cast our minds back a year ago. Uh, the pandemic was declared right around March break, and I remember yeah. the premier saying, uh, "Go and in- enjoy yourself on your March break holiday, and we'll deal with this when we get back." And and March break was also uh, an incredible vector for spread in the United States. Yeah, and they certainly want to prevent that mistake again. And uh, um, just to talk about consumers who, who may still be traveling, uh, you know, the, the main message for people is to encourage them also to book trip if they still want to travel with a travel advisor. Book insurance, book a trip with a travel advisor. Otherwise, it's going to be difficult for them to come back. And we know that right now there are some people who have difficulties coming back to Canada. Well, yes, I want to get into that. Uh Marty Firestone, are there people in Florida who had been hoping to come back, uh, you know, uh, quicker than April that are disappointed? Do they think they're being treated unfairly or what? Yeah, well, actually, forget Florida for a moment. It's the sun destination places, Barbados, Cuba, Dominican Republic, all there. They are struggling to get back because they weren't snowbirds, per se, that were going to be staying down till April. They're finding it very difficult right now to get the negative COVID test in the 72 hours and get ready for the flight. So that's compounding a whole different problem. The people who are down in Arizona, Palm Springs, Florida, and all that, their only decision is, do I get back before the hotel quarantine starts, or do I extend my trip and wait it out, as they say, just ride it out until the restrictions are lifted? So two, two camps here with respect to this new layer that's been added. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that there are a lot of people uh, who are in sun destinations outside of March break who aren't snowbirds. Am I wrong? Well, Mexico is a, is a great spot for, for our new spot, a very busy spot for snowbirds uh, with respect to traveling. And they were planning on staying until March. Now they don't know what to do because, but one quick loophole I'll discuss that I still think hasn't been, been closed. And that is that you could still take uh, U.S. carriers from these locations, including Toronto, to fly to Cancun right now. And you can fly back that way, too. So I'm not quite sure how really? close this really Yes, uh, Delta and a few of the other airlines, they do make one stop, albeit like in Philadelphia or something. But they are still running out of Pearson, which is a whole other can of worms as to how our Canadian planes are sitting idle, yet U.S. planes are flying to these sunspots. Wow, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, Libby, if I, if I could comment, and, and uh, Martin raises a good point, although I think that that, that loophole is, is likely to, to close in, in short order from, uh, from, from, the, from, from the feds. And I think that the message that I would leave with consumers is, and we're all seeing it, the rules are changing constantly. Yeah. And, and, and the signal has been out there that, uh, unfortunately, it sounds harsh, but you travel at your own peril. And if you travel down to destination and then the government says, you know, you're on your own, you know, then, then you you have to weigh that risk, you know, personally. Um, and I and I think the 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 concerns that we have going forward and what we're trying to inform consumers on um, is with all these variants uh, getting increased uh, focus the, these days, um, the rules not yet fully in effect for the recent restrictions. Um, the 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 second wave that we saw after Christmas that they're trying to avoid, you know, by by essentially canceling March break. 
um, is I think you should expect, you know, to see constant change um, in the rules in the weeks and months ahead. And so I'd be very, very cautious if your risk tolerance is such that you want to you want to travel. But if you do, as Dr. Demolish said, do it through a travel advisor. Make sure you're 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 sufficiently insured, and make sure you're fully informed. You know, through through uh, working with one of those uh, TICO registered travel agencies or, or travel agents. Okay, I'm going to try to take one very quick question because we're almost out of time. Uh, Julia in Mississauga, very quickly, what's your question? Okay, I'm just wondering how many people will actually be tested? Because if you're given the option when you come into the airport not to be tested and pay $750 versus be tested and pay $2,000 plus the cost of the test, wouldn't most of the people just take pay the $750 and not be tested? I don't think so. I think the 750 is under the premiers for the next three or four days. Once it becomes the federal rule where you have got to have a mandatory test and a three-day hotel stay at 2000 per person, I don't think you're, you're offered that. I can be corrected, but I don't think the 750 Yeah, as long as it's mandatory, then, you know, everybody's tested, then it works out good. But if they're, it's not mandatory, then I would say most people would take the $750 option. Okay. Uh, and keep in mind, the federal fine is $750,000 or six months uh, in prison. Not that they, you know, hopefully would ever have to en- enact that, but that's that's got to be in the back of your mind as well. Okay. Uh, I think I think the idea is that is that you're going to get tested and you're going to stay in a in a hotel up to three days. Okay. Okay. Uh, thanks, Julia, for your call. I've got like maybe a minute, so I'm going to give each one of you twenty seconds. Please don't go over, Doctor Dimanche. Well. I just want to reiterate the fact that people have to be very careful about traveling right now. Uh, the risk is not only catching the virus, but the risk is to be stuck somewhere and uh, get insurance, go through a travel advisor and uh, hope for the best. Richard Smart. Travel is a, is, a, is, a, is a wonderful opportunity. The travel industry will recover. It's, it's a resilient uh, industry. Um, my, my key message is don't travel now unless you absolutely have to. Uh, if you do, travel safe, be informed, buy insurance, and be safe. And Marty? It will recover, but in fact, right now, access to the hospital overcapacity in some of these destinations is an absolute reason why you should not travel. And we will again. It will come back bigger and better than ever. Okay. Thank you so much, Martin Firestone, Richard Smart, and Dr. Frederick Dimanche. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, well, obviously, we're going to have to revisit this topic. There's a lot of interest in it. But for the moment, that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.